All right. So um, tonight, I just want to let you know there are no discussion questions, but I will have a few hypotheticals throughout the message. Um, so if you want to write those down or just kind of log them in your mind to just think through them throughout the week. Um, and tonight's message, um, usually we like to stick to 25 to 30 minutes, but based on my word count this week, I don't think it's going to be 25 to 30 minutes. Maybe it will, um, but... We're going through the Gospel of Luke. It's a lot of material, and sometimes we're going to fluctuate a little bit in our amount of time. So, um, anyway, we just want to do the, the text justice as we're going through this together this year. So, we'll start with a little recap of last week. Um, Tyler's message was from the first part of Luke chapter 9, and it was on having a patient Savior. Um, not a savior who is a patient at a hospital, but one who is patient with us, who takes the time to teach and train us. And one of the themes that Tyler brought out was Jesus's question, who do you say I am? Um, we saw Herod, we saw the crowds, and we saw Peter pondering that question and kind of asking themselves, who is Jesus? And so Tyler asked us to reflect on who Jesus is to us as well. And to ask ourselves, what, what's our attitude toward Jesus? What do we believe about him? And then Tyler also shared a couple of Jesus' methods. So one of the methods uh, was how he shared good news, the good news of the kingdom of God. And he did that through love and truth and power. And then another was Jesus' teach, try, teach, try, teach and try and teach and try this method of discipleship um, that he had with these 12 men that followed him. And Jesus didn't just want his followers to know these concepts in theory. He wanted them to be able to do something with what they were learning. It's sort of like when you go to school for a specific career path. Um, what you learn in the classroom is only going to take you so far until you actually try it out. Um, and so we have to be practitioners of what we're learning, right? And that's what Jesus thought about his disciples. They needed to learn continually, all the time, but there was nothing that they could learn that would make them overqualified for the job that was ahead. In fact, they would always be underqualified, right? They would always be needing God's strength, and they would always be needing Jesus to come through for them. So, question, have you ever felt um, like you were underqualified for this task of following Jesus? Maybe you don't think so right away, but have you ever felt like you were ill-equipped or like you wouldn't know what to say if someone asked you about your faith? Have you ever thought that you need um, theological answers to all of life's big questions just in case they come up in casual conversation mm -hmm. with people? I have. Um, I've definitely felt like I didn't know that I would have the words to say to somebody um, about, about Jesus when talking with them. So here's a, a little secret of mine. Maybe it's not so big of a secret, but I like to write. Um, 
Did you know that in a survey done in 2002, granted this was 15 years ago, I can't believe 2002 was 15 years ago, um, it was estimated that 81% of Americans thought they had a book in them. That's a lot of people. So I guess I'm with the majority, at least in 2002 I was. But even in my love for writing, um, I have always felt like my life experience wasn't enough to give me a voice to share anything with anyone really. And I have been so intimidated by these imaginary critics that I set up for myself um, that I fail to even start in wanting to share things with people or to, to write more. Um, and then I've also told myself that maybe once I have a master's degree in theological studies, I'll feel qualified. And then I told myself, maybe after we've gone on this journey of church planting, um, I'll feel qualified because that journey might have some life experience that's worth sharing or that people could learn from. But you know what? I've never really started to feel more qualified. Um, the intimidation and the fear is still there. Maybe there's something in your life where you don't feel qualified to do something. And yeah, I know a lot more since getting my master's degree and planting a church. And actually, it's not just head knowledge. I am putting those things into practice. But in the end, there is nothing that will make me qualified enough when it comes to me making excuses, right? The problem lies in me. It lies in me not believing that God has put anything in me that I could give back out. Or me thinking that no one would want to learn from me. Um, but the truth is, because of Jesus, I have the best thing to share with people. And maybe I won't ever write a book. But I do know that I'll never feel qualified to do it anyway. I don't even always feel qualified to share here to be completely honest, but this is writing and teaching and, and sharing too, and I still do it. So um, if Jesus has called me, then he will qualify me too, right? Um, so what does this have to do with anything? This is, all, as always, I feel like I end up with a long introduction. Um, last week, Tyler's final section was about the cost of discipleship. And that's the theme that's going to run through this week, too. And tonight, our key is that Jesus um, is the one qualification necessary for discipleship and for following him. So we're going to break the scripture up. We're going to finish all of chapter 9. We're going to break it up into three sections. So we're going to begin with Luke 9, 28 through 35. And this is the story called the Transfiguration, because in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, the word transfigure is used. Um, here in Luke, that word is not found anywhere, but transfigure means to transform into something more beautiful or elevated, and that's what happens here. So I'll start reading in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, these sayings are the ones where Jesus mentions taking up, his taking up our cross, losing ourselves um, to save our lives, you know, lose your life to save it, and so on. 
So after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So this is an interesting story. Jesus goes up onto this mountaintop and he's praying. And we see that time and time again. That Jesus often got time away from the crowds, usually to pray on his own. But this time he takes three disciples with him. And in the Gospel of Luke, these three men don't really get any special treatment. But in other Gospels, we see that these three were sort of an inner circle for Jesus. Um, They were confided in with more detail. They were explained more about Jesus' mission. And they were with him during some of the most painful moments of his life, including the night before his crucifixion. Where, fun fact, they also fall asleep. Um, In Matthew and Mark, it's these three who fall asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so as Jesus is praying on this mountain, uh, his face is altered. And this makes me think of Moses in the Old Testament who would spend time on Mount Sinai talking to God. And he would come down from the mountain And his face was so brilliant and bright that people were afraid to go near him. So he started wearing a veil over his face. So that's how bright Jesus' face looks, I imagine, here. And Jesus' clothes become dazzling white. One translation says that his clothing was as bright as a flash of lightning. And then Moses and Eliza, Eliza, yeah, it was a woman, no, Elijah shows up. Um, and they have this chat with Jesus on the top of this mountain. So why Moses and Elijah? What are they talking about? Um, Moses and Elijah were the key figures in the Old Testament, um, the Hebrew Bible of the Jews. And Moses was the giver of the law, the law that they tried so hard to follow, but they could never succeed. And then Elijah is known as this figurehead of all the prophets. So in Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, um, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So I think the strange story in the middle of the Gospels, it shows Jesus' divinity and that he was there to fulfill the law and the prophets. Remember, Herod's wondering, who is this man? Um, And Jesus is there to fulfill the law, but not in the way people expected. Jesus' way, 
you know, as we shift kind of in Luke and we start seeing him head toward Jerusalem, his way was the way of suffering. He was going to suffer. And this is what he's talking to Moses and Elijah about. He's speaking of his departure or his exodus that was going to happen in Jerusalem. So the disciples are heavy with sleep. Um, we don't know if they're hearing this conversation, but when they awaken, they see Jesus in all his glory, and he's greater than Moses or Elijah. He's, they can just see his divine nature, I think. And here's where Peter, the one who in last week's passage was emphatic that he knew without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior, here, Peter says that they should put up tents and have these three guys stay there on the mountain. And I think Peter didn't understand Jesus' mission. He didn't understand the end game here. Um, he might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't understand that the Savior has to suffer before he can be glorified. Peter wants Jesus to stay in this glorified divine state right here on the top of the mountain. Um, seeing Jesus in his glory uh, makes Peter make this mistake that this is it. This is the end all. Um, and he forgets that just eight days ago, Jesus had predicted his crucifixion. Um, Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter here. But in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus rebukes Peter for what I think is a similar reason. In Matthew 16, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, and Peter says, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. I mean, I wouldn't want to be a hindrance to Jesus on the level that I'm getting compared to Satan. <laughs> But I'm kind of with Peter. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could just see Jesus in his glory, um, not have to watch him suffer? Wouldn't it be great if we could just stay at the transfiguration or stay in the discipleship mode um, where Jesus is walking there with us the whole time, kind of holding our hand along the way and not having to see him die? Wouldn't it be nice if we could dwell in the learn, learn, learn mode and not the try, try, fail, try again places of life? Um, not really. I mean, I'm into the learning and the trying part, but not really the failing part. Um, so back to the transfiguration. A cloud overshadows them and they hear this voice from heaven and this reminds me of Jesus' baptism, where the heavens opened up and a voice spoke, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And here the voice says, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So Jesus is still the chosen son, the beloved son. God is still pleased with him and is now instructing the disciples to listen to Jesus. One pastor says that this is a time when Jesus is revealed to the disciples as God and Messiah, but it's also a time when Jesus, um, he's encouraged by the Father's presence and the Father's favor for the future. That Jesus, 
he has these key moments where the father really speaks to him and he's needing to be filled up with this approval from his father to continue to walk out this suffering and death in his final resurrection. He knows what's coming and God the Father speaks an encouragement to him. So let's move to section two. Um, we're going to start in verse 37 here. On the next day, when they had come down from, a, from the mountain, a great crowd met them. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your hearts. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me for he who is least among you all is the greatest is the one who is great. John answered, master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers <clears throat> ahead of him, <laughs> who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? It's extreme. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Let's pause here. So Jesus and his three closest buddies, uh, they come down from the mountain, and soon after, there's a great crowd around Jesus once again, and this is why he keeps going up to the mountain to pray, because the crowds never quit. They can't stop and won't stop. <laughs> In the crowd, there is a man um, who cries out to them. And he says that he's got this only son with an unclean spirit. And he's seizing up and foaming at the mouth. And he's convulsing. And to me, this sounds a lot like epilepsy. Um, and I, please hear me. I'm not trying to insinuate that people with epilepsy are demon-possessed, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But it is interesting to me that we have no cure for epilepsy. 
we can treat the symptoms with medication, but we can't cure it. And Jesus is this boy's cure. So Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit, he heals the boy, and he gives him back to his father. A quick note on verse 41, which is super intense, where Jesus says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? When I read that this, this week, I thought, has our patient savior that Tyler talked about last week suddenly become really impatient? And the more that I read and researched, there's a lot of different opinions about this verse. Um, but I think that compared to Jesus' time on the mountain the previous day, in all his glory and hearing his father's voice, I personally think that he's overwhelmed by the misery of the world around him. He's overwhelmed by the disciples' inability to heal in this case, and and Jesus knows that more suffering is to come for him. And in the midst of this, of Jesus healing this boy, the people are all marveling at what Jesus did, and they're caught up in wonder, and they're amazed at Jesus' work. But Jesus, he turns to the disciples, and he again, in this sly way, predicts his death. He says that he will soon be delivered into the hands of men. And based on the crowds at this exact moment, um, being delivered into the hands of men doesn't really sound very scary because Jesus is a popular guy. He's got their favor and amazement, but Jesus recognizes that his popularity is short-lived. His ultimate mission as Savior will not be accomplished through his popularity as a healer or an exorcist or a teacher even. He will die and rise again to reconcile the world to God. And the disciples don't understand this. So much so, they don't understand it, that it seems like pretty soon afterward, um, they're already arguing about who's the greatest out of them. And I wonder if maybe they're even arguing about who's the greatest because Jesus is so darn popular. Maybe they liked the notoriety of, of associating with Jesus. <clears throat> but would they be prepared for the suffering, the bearing of their own cross that was to come? Would they be willing to be martyred or killed for their faith? Um, for spreading the gospel? Were they ready for that yet? I don't think they were ready. They didn't understand what it costs to be a disciple. Um, and Jesus knows that they're reasoning in their hearts about who's the greatest. And I found this quote this week that really just made this whole issue like come to life for me. And it was in the New Interpreter's Bible. And it says that <clears throat> debating in their hearts is a trait that Luke assigns to Jesus' opponents, especially the scribes and Pharisees. By debating among themselves over greatness, the disciples have fallen into the character trait of Jesus' opponents. No stronger censure could be given to the Christian community than to warn it that even its leaders, the disciples, were susceptible to this temptation. So we all fall prey, I think, at least a little bit, to wondering who's the greatest. 
And Jesus, rather than calling them out like he usually does with the Pharisees, um, he gives them an illustration and he shows them visually what it means to be great. He brings a small child to his side and he shows them that those who are small or least or view themselves smallest, those who are humble, um, those are the greatest in God's kingdom, like a child. And their response about the greatest and the least, it seems completely unrelated to me. John answers, it says he answered, that he saw someone casting out demons in Jesus' name and he told them to stop. What does that have to do with anything? They had to stop because they weren't part of their group. Why would John be concerned about this? I wonder if it could partially be because they were unable to cast out the unclean spirit in our previous scene, right? And Jesus tells them not to stop people. He says that just because they didn't follow with them, with the 12, did not mean that they weren't following him. Interesting. They weren't coming against the disciples and they weren't coming against Jesus. And I wonder how often we look at others who follow Jesus and we judge them. Um, how often can we be uncharitable toward other Christians? How often do we allow ourselves to have this inner dialogue of who's the greatest, but who's really got it right when it comes to following this Jesus guy? And we compare ourselves to others in our own church and... Um, <coughs> to other Christians across town and to other churches across the globe. And I wonder if it's possible that by doing that comparison thing, we are also ending up in the category of the Pharisees, that we are also ending up having this character trait of an opponent instead of a partner to Christ. So what's worse is that the disciples don't learn anything from this warning. At least it doesn't seem like it to me. Um, the disciples lacked love when it came to other followers of Jesus. And they lack love when it comes to the Samaritans. So when they continue their journey, the Samaritans refuse to give them shelter. And I wondered why this was. And as it turns out, Samaritans just never let Jews stay when they were on their way to Jerusalem. And this was because the Samaritans worshipped the same God but in a different place. They believed God was to be worshipped at Mount Gerizim. And there was just this harsh rivalry between the Jews and the Samaritans, and this was part of it. And so because Jesus and the Twelve were on their way to Jerusalem, not Mount Gerizim, um, the Samaritans wanted no support, wanted no part in supporting um, the Jews because a lot of Jews had a superiority kind of attitude toward them. We're worshipping at the true temple. Um, and so the Samaritans just didn't want any part in giving them shelter. So instead of understanding the cultural dynamics, James and John just jump right into it. And they say, uh, it's like they've learned nothing. Why don't we call down fire and destroy them? Hadn't they just learned not to rebuke other followers of Jesus or people who were casting out demons in Jesus' name? And now, you know, they want to kill an entire village. 
or maybe even a whole people group because they weren't given, given lodging for one night. And so in classic Jesus fashion, he does just as he'd suggested earlier when he told the disciples to just kick the dust off of their feet if a city wasn't ready for them. And so Jesus just has them move on to another village in their journey. <clears throat> Section 3. We're going to finish up chapter 9, um, starting in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to them, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. End of chapter 9. So in this last section, we have three men. And the first and third are volunteers, and they offer to follow Jesus. And the second man is invited by Jesus to follow. So we're going to look at each of these men, and then we'll wrap up for the night. Um, the first man makes this claim that he's going to follow Jesus unconditionally. And then Jesus responds with this short saying that's kind of like a parable. He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And I think that Jesus is essentially asking this man, do you know what following me will take? Do you know that I'm headed towards suffering? Do you know that I just got rejected in Samaria on my way to Jerusalem, that I had nowhere to sleep? It may all look like popularity and fame to you, but I'm actually homeless. And I'm going to be rejected even more in the future, even to the point of death. And then the second man is not a volunteer. He's invited by Jesus. And the man responds um, that he first wants to go bury his father. Oh my goodness. Now, let me clarify here, because there was a time in my life when I was reading this, and I thought Jesus was just being completely heartless. But um, through my research, Pretty much everyone agrees that the man's father is most likely still alive, and he may not even be old or sick or anything. Otherwise, this man wouldn't be on the road to Jerusalem. He would be in his parents' home. So this man is putting conditions on following Jesus because there was a cultural expectation of, of taking care of one's parents. And so this man is kind of saying he's going to follow, but just eventually. And for him, the pressures of society and these expectations of his community are great. And the demand to care for his parents is taking a precedent over his desire to follow Christ. And Jesus's response is, is kind of strange. Um, but he says that the dead can bury their own dead, or it kind of implies more that the, the spiritually dead can bury the dead. 
But he's again calling this man, follow me and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then the third man is similar to the second in his response to Jesus. So he's a volunteer like the first man, but he's also putting conditions on following. He says that he would like to say goodbye to his family first. Okay. That doesn't seem like a crazy request, right? Go kiss them goodbye and then follow Jesus. But Jesus answers with this semi-cryptic message, this parable-like saying, that no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So in other words, um, there's no looking back after following Christ. In this image of plowing, um, which the people there would have understood, unless one's eyes looked ahead, the rows, the furrows, would get crooked, and the whole field being planted would, would be ruined. So that's why they had to look ahead. Um, so this saying, it's a rebuke of the man's request. And I wondered again, why the harsh words? Why? Can't this man say farewell to his family? Um, no, because in this case, this man didn't just want to say goodbye to his family. He likely wanted to get permission from his father to follow Jesus. So a biblical scholar named Kenneth Bailey writes about this. The point is the volunteer is asking for the right to go home and get permission from those at home, i.e. his parents. Everyone listening to the dialogue knows that naturally his father will refuse to let the boy wander off on some questionable enterprise. Thus, the volunteer's excuse is ready-made. So at the time of Bailey's writing, which was admittedly 1980, so things could have changed a lot since then. But at that time, he said that um, living in the Middle East, he lived there for a while, people even in their 40s would frequently um, travel from a big city to their hometown village to ask their father's permission for foreign travel, for changing jobs, for all kinds of things. So even in your 40s, asking your parents permission. Um, have you ever waited for another person's permission to do something for Jesus? There have been times in my life where I let the opinions of others make me feel silly for following Jesus or for doing something he called me to do. And then on the flip side, there have also been times when what God was asking me to do seemed so big that I was just hoping or wishing that something would come up so that I didn't have to obey. So have you ever felt obligated to do something, to like go somewhere or attend something, and then you look at your calendar and you realize you already have plans? And you're like, yay, I can say no and not feel bad about it. Um, at least that's what I think sometimes. I think a lot of the introverts in the room probably feel that way. I think Jesus doesn't want a calendar that's pre-booked with a lot of events. I think Jesus wants our calendars blank for him. Not literally, but he wants us to volunteer without conditions. And he also wants us to let him interrupt our lives and to fill our days with him.
kind of final thoughts here. Is there ever a good time to follow Jesus wholeheartedly? I think if the stories of the disciples in the previous sections teach us anything, um, it's that we don't have to be qualified to follow. We're going to continue to have bad attitudes. We're going to search for fame or greatness. We're going to judge others who don't follow Jesus the same way we do. We're going to want to call down fire from heaven to destroy people. Maybe not. Probably not. We're going to probably not go that far. But you get the point. Um, I think that we're all guilty of misunderstanding what it means to follow Jesus. We think it's an easy task, but Jesus actually demands something of us. He requires something of us. And this seems like a heavy topic. It seems like the cost of discipleship is really weighty or it's too heavy for us to carry. What happened to Jesus saying that his burden is light? And I recently read something on this topic by a contemporary Christian writer. His name's Aaron Wilson. And he pondered whether following Jesus is easy or difficult. And he says this, Christians carry light burdens on a hard path, while the world carries heavy burdens on an easy path. The burden of the world... The burden that the world carries is the weight of performance and the shame of guilt. However, while a Christian's burden may be easy, their path is difficult. It's a trail marked with suffering, persecution, delayed gratification, and a regular dying to self. The world's path is much easier. It promises as little suffering as possible, acceptance by many, immediate gratification, and the promotion of self. And isn't that what the disciples still seem to want? They wanted popularity and ease. They're soon going to learn what it means to really take up their cross and to follow, to selflessly love others, and to choose to not promote themselves, but to promote Jesus. We're all underqualified but we're also all called to discipleship. The road is going to look hard sometimes, but our relationship with Jesus makes the burden light. Jesus is our only qualification. The only qualification we need is that relationship we have with him. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, says this, To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. When we keep our eyes on the road, it looks really difficult. But when we keep our eyes on Jesus, he's all we can see. That's it for tonight. Um, we're going to respond.